This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Earners, what's up? Look, today I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind, a real weight on my shoulders. You know, we all have these moments, big or small, that just stick with us. When we don't talk about these things, then they can start to affect our lives in unexpected ways. That's why having a space to express these feelings is so important. I know firsthand the benefits of therapy. It's been transformative for my friends and family. Therapy can help you learn crucial skills like setting boundaries and developing coping strategies. It's not just about dealing with major events. It's also about enhancing your day-to-day life, allowing you to become the best version of yourself. So if you've been thinking about therapy, BetterHelp can be a great option for you. It's entirely online, which makes it super convenient and adaptable to your busy schedule. You start by filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can even switch therapists at any time if you feel the need without any additional cost. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash EarnYourLeisure today to get 10% off your first month. Remember, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash EarnYourLeisure. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over there now. Earners, what's up? Look, I want to give y'all a little peek behind the curtain of producing Earn Your Leisure. It's a lot more than just sitting down and chatting. It involves meticulous planning, recording, editing, and then promoting each episode to ensure it reaches all of you. And if you picked up any of our merch, then you know there's a whole extra layer of logistics from inventory management to shipping. Running a podcast is like running a small business. And speaking of business, I know many of you entrepreneurs are involved in e-commerce. You understand how crucial it is to streamline operations and cut costs wherever possible. That's why I want to talk to you about ShipStation, the multi-carrier shipping solution that integrates seamlessly with all your online sales channels. It's all about optimizing your shipping, connecting with expert partners, and freeing up more of your time to focus on scaling your business. Now let's talk about our experience with ShipStation. This tool has been a game changer for us, especially with automating routine tasks. Being able to manage everything from one dashboard and print shipping labels with just a click, absolute lifesavers. Plus, the discounts we get on shipping costs are incredible. Honestly, it feels like we're saving thousands. And as our show and merch sales have grown, ShipStation's robust automation and reporting features have helped us keep up without missing a beat. For those of you who get overwhelmed by order volumes, ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard is a dream come true. You can import orders from any sales channel, apply shipping preferences automatically, and handle customer service issues right there. Not to mention the savings with up to 89% off carrier rates like UPS, DHL Express, and USPS. It's no wonder over 130,000 companies stick with ShipStation long term. So, are you ready to turn your shipping challenges into growth opportunities? Head over to ShipStation.com and use promo code EARN for a free 60-day trial. Again, that's ShipStation.com, promo code EARN. Start streamlining your shipping and scaling your business today. All right, so here we are with the legendary David Rubenstein. Uh, thank you for joining us. Yes. If you're not familiar with David, he is the chair of the Board of Trustees of Duke University. He is the host of Bloomberg's Peer-to-Peer Conversations. Yes. And he is the co-founder and co-chairman of private equity firm, the Carlisle Group, uh, which is a global private equity 
investment firm. How much assets under management? Four hundred billion. If if that number has changed, please correct me. But four hundred <laughs> billion advantage of uh, under uh, management right now, which is amazing. <laughs> yes. So, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And he's an author too. We'll talk about his book. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to reading that book. Yes, very important. So, all right. So let's get into it. Um, I want to start off with you know some education for the audience. Um, private equity. Can you explain what private equity is? I feel that people have a good understanding of venture capital because that's been in the news a lot and that's been very popular the, the last couple of years. Um, but I. Think that the general public still doesn't have a good understanding, or they might not have ever even heard of private equity. So mm-hmm. Can you explain okay. private equity? What you let guys me, let me explain. Uh, in the United States, the phrase private equity means one thing. Outside the United States, it means another thing. In the United States, private equity more or less means all private investments. It could be venture capital, growth capital, distressed debt, anything where you're buying an asset that is something that's going to be held privately. It's not going to be public when you own it. And the theory behind private equity is that when you have something that's not in a public setting, you can make changes, you can improve it, you can incent people, you can pay them more, and ultimately you'll get a better return. So the theory behind private equity is that you buy an asset, you make it much better. When you sell it or you take it public, you're going to get a rate of return on your investment that's going to be, let's say, 20% per annum. So if you put your money in the bank, you're going to get maybe 1% a year. If you put your money in the stock market, maybe you get on average 6% a year. If you put your money in, uh, in private equity, and it's a good private equity uh, fund or, 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 or deal, you might get 20% or 30% a year. Well, that's pretty good. So the theory is it's a better way to make uh, add value to an organization and you can, and you can uh, you know, get a good rate of return. So that's what it is. Basically fixing up something in a private setting making it better and ultimately selling it after three to five years that gets you a return of maybe 20% a year. Um, thank you for being here. I'm a huge fan of your show. Can you talk to us about um, the importance of being a contrarian in the face of conventional wisdom? And are there any sectors right now you okay. think people should take a contrarian take on in this environment? All right. The, the greatest investors in the world uh, generally are contrarians. If you just went along with the average uh, common sense view of what the average person thinks, you would be one of the pack and you wouldn't do anything that make you stand out. So contrarians take a view that's different than the average common sense wisdom. Today, for example, the common sense wisdom that the average investor would have is get out of the stock market, sell whatever you have, the economy's going to hell in a handbasket, and we're going to be in a recession. The smart investors would say, now's the time to come in, buy things at a discount, and eventually, and the recessions always end, and eventually in three or four years, you'll have bought something at 50 cents on a dollar, and in two or three years, it'll be worth $3, something like that. So that's when a contrarian goes against the conventional wisdom. Well, our audience is, is you know filled with retail investors. We have some institutional investors, I'm sure, but a lot of retail investors. And obviously, they're learning the, the market, they're understanding it, they're investing in it. What are some habits that you've come across in, in your career that you've noticed that great and good investors have, right? Mm-hmm. So they can have an edge. Well, people who are great investors, generally, this is their life. This is what they do full time. They aren't 
kind of have a day job and then they're picking stocks at night and then they mm. kind of they do well. You have to do this full time. You have to be pretty smart, good with numbers. You have to have a, a, a willingness to read enormous amounts of material. You have to admit a mistake when you make it and get out of a bad deal because everybody makes a mistake. I think it also takes some humility to be a great investor because you realize you're going to make mistakes and you can't say, I'm so brilliant and the market's wrong, but I'm right and the market's wrong and you start yeah. losing money. Um, and you know those are things that make great investors. Um, the, the average retail investor who buys stocks in the public market, you know, they're probably not great investors. They just they haven't done this for a living. You have to do something for a living. And you know, if you were you were going to a dentist, you wouldn't want a dentist who is uh, spending full time uh, uh, picking stocks. You want a dentist who's going to actually know how to be a dentist. So an average dentist or doctor isn't doing this full time, and therefore they're probably not going to be that good at it. That's why for the average retail investor, the average person who's not a professional. They're probably best to go into index funds, which just mirror the market. Very modest fees. And they, the stock market goes up 13% a year. You're going to go up 13% a year. Try to pick stocks and become Warren Buffett while you have a day job as a, as a dentist or doctor is a fool's errand. So let me ask you this. Um, what are your thoughts on the handling of the economy um, by the Fed this year? Been My thoughts on what? I'm sorry. Can you speak up? The Fed's handling of the economy. Okay. Fed. okay. I should disclose that I hired a young man to work for me years ago, and he was at our firm for a number of years, and he left. His name is Jay Powell. So now he's the chairman <laughs> of the Federal Reserve Board. But he doesn't give me any insights. The Federal Reserve made a terrible mistake. They underestimated how serious the inflation was going to be. The United States government injected $5 trillion into our economy um, to deal with COVID. And you put $5 trillion into an economy that's roughly a $22 trillion economy, you're going to get inflation. So we got a lot of inflation. The Fed said for a while, it's transitory, which means it'll be gone soon. They were wrong. So now they're going to increase uh, interest rates a fair bit to get inflation down. Now, as you may have seen last week, inflation came down a little bit, still at 7.7%. The Fed wants to get inflation down to 2% per year. That's what we've mm. had in the last 25 years, 2% a year. It wasn't a big factor. Getting it back to 2% is not easy. Um, I know a lot about inflation because I worked in the Carter White House when we got inflation to 19%. Nobody's ever do that again, right? So I would say the Fed has, is now serious about fighting inflation. They're going to keep increasing interest rates for a while. And I suspect in de December, they will have another meeting and they'll increase interest rates by another 75 basis points or almost one full point. So, um, yeah, I think the Fed has uh, probably made a mistake in the beginning. Now they're trying to compensate for it. I think they're doing a reasonably good job now. Um, in light of the FTX scandal, um, looking back at the interview that you did with Sam, as an investor, is there anything in hindsight that made you say something about him or the strategy of the company didn't feel right? Which, which about who? Uh, uh, FTX. Oh, FTX. Yes. <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, well, it was the only interview ever I had where the guy showed up in a t-shirt, shorts, uh, and tennis shoes. That's all he had wore. And that's apparently that was his normal dress. So um, I was a little was a little unusual. Usually people dress a little bit better for the interviews. Um, yeah. He's um, look, you meet a lot of people in this world who are brilliant young people. And when you are a brilliant young person and you haven't had a failure, you think you really are brilliant and you you, know, you walk on water. So he had never made a mistake, really. He built a business where in the age of 
30, he's worth $22 billion. So when you were 30 years old, you guys look like you're maybe a little older than 30. I don't know. But when you were 30 years old, if you were worth $22 billion, you would think you walk on water. Absolutely. He he, uh, may have thought that. Yeah, I would say it appears that they made a terrible mistake. And whether it's criminal or not, I don't know. But they were taking customer accounts and putting them into other businesses that the customers didn't know about. So let's suppose you have an account at Merrill Lynch and you put $1,000 into it and they told you later, well, guess what? We took that $1,000, we lent it to something else and uh, we'll give you your $1,000 back soon. Well, before they could give it back to you, it went bankrupt. So you're out your $1,000. That appears to be what they did. And therefore there's a lot of challenges there. So he's a smart guy. I've met him on a couple of occasions. Um, I would say, you know, you have to be wary of people who are 30 years old and think they walk on water because it rarely happens. Noted. <laughs> so now, there was there was one 33 year old guy that did walk on water, but that was unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get on the boat so I could walk on water. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, one of the greatest investors uh, of our time. Um, obviously, the Carlo Group, like we said, 400 billion uh, managing assets. Prior to even getting into finance, I know you studied law. So what was that transition like from you going into law to finance? Uh, Well, let's be honest. Um, If you're going to be good at something, you have to love it. And I wasn't, I didn't love to practice law. And my clients uh, told me I wasn't that good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I went to law school to make my mother happy because she said, you can either be a doctor or a lawyer. So I didn't want to go to medical school. So I went to law school and um, I was really interested in politics. And so I was really interested in working in government. And I went to work for Jimmy Carter at the White House for four years when I was in my 20s. And, um, you know, we got inflation to 19%. And the result was we didn't lose. We lost the election. So um, I had to go back and practice law. That's all I knew. But I wasn't that good at it. My clients reminded me of that. So I decided to do something different. And I started a firm in, in Washington in 1987 that grew to be one of the largest private equity firms in the world. So I got lucky. I surrounded myself with really smart people that knew more than I did. And the key to really building a great business is surrounding yourself with smarter people than you. So um, that's what happened. I built it. It's now one of the largest firms in the world in that area. But I, 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 I was attracted to it because I thought, if I'm going to be not in government, and government doesn't want me because I didn't do a good job, and I'm going to be in the private sector, yeah, I might as well make the most amount of money I can make. And business people and private equity firms are making a lot more money than lawyers. And they ought to actually seem to be more enjoyable. So that's why I started it, and it, it worked. So let me ask you this. Um, you talked about inflation a few times. Last week, a report came out, and they said that they thought that inflation might have peaked and that that was good for the market. Right. Do, you, do you think that inflation has peaked? Well, um, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, last week, the numbers came out that said that inflation rate from month to month year to year was 7.7%. Now, if I told you inflation was going to be 7.7% annualized, you would run for the hills. But because it was previously over 8%, it was 8.6%, yes. 7.7% looked wonderful. So yes, it, it may have peaked. I think it probably has. But remember, uh, it, inflation uh, was very high because we injected so much money in the economy. The war in Ukraine had a, a very high effect on energy prices and the food sh- uh, uh, supply chain so there are many things that produced this high inflation. I think it probably has peaked, but nobody really knows for certain. Now, I'd say if the war in Ukraine were to end in a couple of months, that would be great for inflation. 
And if um, uh, Ukraine could start producing and shipping wheat again, that would be great for inflation. But I, I'd say it's a little premature to say it's peaked because we need a couple months of data. Just one month isn't probably enough. Um, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, can you share with us what's one lesson you learned from maybe Jim Simmons, Ken Griffin, and maybe John Paulson um, right. around how they invest in a, a very impactful lesson that will help our audience tonight? Well, Ken Griffin is a guy that built one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. He's also got a separate company called Citadel Securities, and he's extremely wealthy. He basically believes in analyzing data very carefully. He has surrounds himself with really, really smart people, and he tries very hard to get the best people in the country who are really good with numbers. He, he tries to steal people from Google, not steal, but recruit people from Google, Facebook, um, Microsoft, Apple, get really smart people and who know numbers, and they really analyze these things carefully. Um, John Paulson made one bet. It was a bet that the mortgage market would collapse. And at the time, people didn't think it would be quite as bad as it turned out to be. So he made on one investment twenty billion dollars. Yeah. Twenty billion. So you don't have to do anything the rest of your life if you make twenty billion dollars. <laughs> right? It's a good trade. Sounds about right. So I'd say it was the greatest trade of all time, and so he he did pretty well. But basically, he analyzed the fact that mortgage market was probably over uh, inflated, and he correctly uh, bet on that. Yeah, mo most people say no risk, no reward. Obviously, in your space, when you're managing people's money, that 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 you know may not be true, or maybe it is. Can you talk about the importance of risk management when you're talking about private equity? Well, I think what in private equity. I'm sorry. Risk management. The importance. Management. Of it. Well, um, you know, risk management is a is a is a way of managing your money where you're you're basically um, in effect hedging. You're you're trying not to get the highest rate of return but you're trying to protect against the downside. Private equity is different than that. Private equity is basically saying, we're going to fix a company, make it better. We're not trying to hedge against it. So it's different. I would say, depends on what somebody really wants out of life. Um, if you're, you're, you're 75 years old and you're living on a retirement income and you don't have a lot of money coming in, you don't want to take a big risk. You probably have a more uh, a risk management kind of approach, which is to say um, you're protecting the downside. If you're 25 years old, and you can take a, a lot of risk because if you make the mistakes, you can go make money again. Probably private equity might be better for you because you're willing to take the upside and you don't need to protect the downside so much. It depends on your situation. How much money can you afford to lose? For example, cryptocurrencies, I always told people, don't put more in than you can afford to lose. And some people did. People did. Oh, <laughs> what is, what's your economic outlook for 2023? I would say for 2023, I suspect the United States will probably go into a recession. That's a very common view. And that's because if you go back from to 1960, almost every time the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates dramatically, the result has been a so-called hard landing or a recession. So it's unlikely we're going to be able to avoid it this time, but it'll probably be very modest. I don't expect it to be a serious inflation of the type we had in, in the uh, a serious recession, the type we had uh in the in, in the Great Recession of 2007, 8, 9. I suspect it to be a two-quarter recession. And, you know, two quarters is not that serious. So I think uh, the economy will probably slip a bit in that period of time, but I think inflation will come down. The unemployment rate will go up. I suspect the unemployment rate will probably go up to about four, four and a half percent next year, something like that. Um, Congress is not going to do anything, not that anybody will notice or want Congress to do anything. But, <laughs> um, 
Congress isn't going to spend much money because uh, they're just not a lot of money left to spend. We, we have $30 trillion of debt in this country. This mm-hmm. country, you and I owe other people $30 trillion. That's a lot of money. And we can't afford to borrow much more. If you were getting into private equity in 2023, uh, what would be the differences in your strategy in 2023 right. versus when you began in your career? Well, when I was starting, inflation was not a factor um, and certain things were not available then. Today, I would say a good thing in 2023 would be buy distressed debt. Distressed debt is when you're buying debt that a company that's not doing that well and you buy it at you know, 50 cents on a dollar and probably will come back to a dollar if you know what you're doing and it's a good deal. So I would buy a lot of distressed debt. I would look at uh, things that are going to be um, uh, important in certain areas of the future. One of them would be uh, things like uh, quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Another thing would be computational biology. Another one's things would be CRISPR, which is uh, gene splitting. Um, another kind of area that I think uh, you know, would be good would be healthy food, uh, food that's healthy for you. That's going to be a big trend as well. So I look for things that in the future that are going to be good trends that people want to buy things into and you get there ahead of them. Yeah. So for, for obviously for 2023, you said the outlook is it was a recession, but in these right. type of environments, uh, you mentioned some sectors. Are there other sectors that retail investors definitely should be looking at? I know you said maybe indexes, yes. which it would start, but are there sectors yes. on the retail uh, side that we should be looking at? Well, yes. Uh, for example, uh, healthcare. When I worked in the White House before you were born, were any of you born in 1977? Any of you alive then? No. 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 All right. So I was working for President Carter in the White House. At that time, the GDP of the United States was 7% in the healthcare area, 7%. Mm. Today, it's about 22%. So that means we are spending much more money on healthcare because people are wealthier and they want to live longer. And so what they do is they spend money on healthcare, telemedicine, all kinds of pharmaceutical things you can buy. So I think healthcare is going to be one of the great continuous growth sectors in our country. But people outside the United States, they want to live a long time too. So as people get wealthier outside the United States, they want to spend more money on medical treatment, healthcare. And so that's going to be one of the great growth areas, I think, in our country and around the world. So the name of your new book is How to Invest Masters of the Craft. So along the lines of that, I definitely want you to talk about the book, but um, what are some keys to becoming a great investor? One, uh, do reasonably well in school. Uh, Two, keep reading, always read stuff. You never know when it's going to be helpful. Three, uh, be willing to go against the conventional wisdom. Four, surround yourself with smart people. Next, maintain some humility. Next, make sure when you make a mistake, own up to it. Share the, the, the credit and be willing to take the blame. And also, I think in the end, if you make a fair amount of money, be philanthropic. I think it's very helpful. Um, you've done incredibly well in your career. Like what drives you to continue going and how many hours a day are you putting into mastering your craft? Right. Each day? Um, I am uh, old now. I'm 73 years old. So when Ronald Reagan was 69 and running for, for uh, election against Jimmy Carter, I told Carter, look, Reagan is so old, he can't get out of bed in the morning. He's 69 years old. Now I'm 73. So, you know, I'm old. But um, what motivates me is I want to, you know, I I came from very, very modest circumstances. Uh, My parents didn't graduate from high school. I I was the only child. My father made $7,000 a year. So I wanted to work hard and get somewhere and make something of myself and make my parents proud of what they had produced. So I worked hard and, you know, a hard work generally pays off. And I got lucky, a lot of luck. So what motivates me now is to kind of 
uh, be a role model for other people, but also my own children. I have three children, and I don't want them to think that their old man is basically sloughing off and not doing anything. And doing, you know, I want them to think I'm doing something productive for the country. And so that's what motivates me. In, in your book, How to Invest, you got you got the opportunity to interview some of the greatest investors in, in, in the history of you know, the United States of America. A lot of the success stories were told, but I, I'm interested in seeing what were some of the mistakes that some of these investors mm-hmm. made, right? Because we, we hear the glory stories, but obviously they had to go through some trials and tribulations to get to that point. What are some of, some of the mistakes that you can share? Well, they all made mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes. Uh, Ken Griffin, now one of the greatest investors, now very wealthy guy, um, his company almost went bankrupt. His company almost went bankrupt in the Great Recession. Uh, the guy that runs the biggest hedge fund of all time and the most successful hedge fund of all time is Ray Dalio. Um, he invested one way when he was early out of business school, and he lost all his money. He had to go to his father to borrow $4,000. He was broke. So, you know, he, he also made a mistake of punching his boss in the face one time. That's probably not a good idea. Um, so... Um, People always make mistakes. Warren Buffett made mistakes. They, they all make mistakes. You just have to pick yourself up off the ground and learn from your mistakes. That's the key. If you find somebody that never made a mistake, you've got to be careful because that person has too big an ego. And telling people how great you are is not a good thing. You know, there may be some people, presidents of the United States, who tell people how great they are, but generally, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, you know, can you imagine Abraham Lincoln saying, I won the Civil War by myself? No. It wouldn't yeah. happen. You want somebody that's humble and great investors have a certain amount of humility. They've made mistakes, but they've learned from it. So um, you, guys, uh, you guys seem like you're in sports as well. You got these those uh, tennis shoes behind you. Are you great athletes also? No, <laughs> that's subjective. <laughs> Definitely love sports. I, yeah, I, I love see sports. the memorabilia in your background as well. Well, I am. Um, I'm a terrible athlete, but I'll show you this. This. Uh, <laughs> This is uh, from Coach K. Uh, we won the national championship when I was uh, the, the chairman of the board at Duke. Uh, I was sending in plays from the, him by hand signals. <laughs> he said that was the key is those hand signal plays. That's how he won. Yes. <laughs> Coach K, the legend himself. Uh, let me ask you this. 98.5% of asset management firms, which includes private equity, VC, and investment management firms, 98.5% are run by white men. Obviously, a lack of diversity is an understatement. Do you, right. do you, have, do you have a problem with that? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, if you read my book, it wasn't 98.5% of the people in that book were white men. So I had a, a fair number of people who were women and, and uh, minorities because I thought it was important to show that while there has been a bias towards white men, and it's been a white male society. Um, it's it's uh, it's changing a bit. Um, you know, I don't think it's a great situation. You have a the, 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 this country is going to be a minority uh, white country uh, in my lifetime. Uh, right now, probably the, the country is about sixty percent, fifty eight percent white. But I suspect uh, if I live long enough, it's going to be less than fifty percent, and that should be reflected in the investment management and other things. So I put a number of. of African-American leaders in the book, in the investment world. Uh, and I've interviewed many others as well. One in the book is a guy named John Rogers. John Rogers built the uh, Ariel Capital, one of the yeah. largest uh, African-American owned um, investment firms in the, in the country. I've interviewed on my TV show, Melody Hobson, who you may know. 
Melody Hobson is married to uh, George Lucas, but in her own right, she's built uh, with Ariel Capital into a, a really successful investment career. So I, I think it's if it's ninety eight point five percent, I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute your number, but I would say it's changing. Um, I have a quick uh, two parter. Uh, what does your day to day schedule look like, and who has been your favorite guest on the show over the last few years, and what was the biggest lesson you learned from them? Uh, my favorite guest, well, it's like asking which of my children is my favorite. I don't ever tell, tell people, but I would say a guest that I thought was really good was uh, Jeff Bezos, because what makes a guest work, work well is he has a sense of humor, sense of humility, plays along with some jokes I might give. And he also, it's good to do this in front of a live audience, because if you have a live audience, that it makes, it makes the uh, interviewee uh, play to the audience a little bit and makes it more interesting. If you're just doing it with nobody in the audience, it sometimes can fall flat and not be as interesting. Yeah. Jeff Bezos was great. Oprah Winfrey was one of the best. Uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush together were really great. Um, I just interviewed uh, not long ago uh, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, and uh, that was, we discussed, a little unusual. I am scheduled <laughs> to be interviewing soon. I hope to be interviewing very soon uh, Mike Tyson and Alex yeah. Rodriguez. That's going to be good. Mike Tyson's going to be I'm going to see whether Mike Tyson, uh, you know, can beat me in an arm wrestling match or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you you mentioned uh, your, your children, your three children, uh, and obviously you mentioned them as, you know, being great guests. I wonder, uh, did they take an interest in your career path as well? I know you wanted to do law because of no. what your parents said. What what was the interest in your kids as as you were going through your career? Well, when I was building my firm, I was running around the world raising money and doing stuff. I, I, so they didn't probably know what I was doing when they were younger. They just had no clue. It now turns out that all three of my children are in private equity and they have their own funds. Mm. So, um, so now they call me up and ask me if I can introduce them to an investor or I can help them and analyze a deal. So in that way, it's good. But my, my kids all were well-educated. They went to really good schools. and uh, But I didn't push them to do uh any of these things they, they kind of came to it eventually i don't know why but they did yeah before we leave i wanted to ask you this question what do you personally look for in investments it could be an investment in a company investment in stocks like what's right. important to you to say okay i feel comfortable making well, this when we're looking at an investment in a private company we're looking for a management team that's pretty uh strong committed to it they've got a lot of their own net worth tied up into it you want to make sure the company has um the ability to uh uh, survive downturns, make sure the capital structure works, uh, make certain it's a product that is likely to be popular in the future, not just now. Uh, but in the end, you're looking for the right price. You know, you can have the greatest company in the world, but if you pay too much for it, it's not going to work. So you've got to pay at the right price and make sure that you're not overpaying for these things. Uh, one of the biggest things that, that I find men have a struggle with is balance. Um, you have any advice for men that are running businesses, but are also trying to have a good, healthy work-life balance, or do you think that's a fallacy? Well, that's the great conundrum in the world. I mean, can you really build a great business and have a healthy personal life and have a good balance in life? Some people figure it out. You know, obviously, it's not it's not perfect. It's not easy to do. Um, you know, uh, some of the wealthiest people in the world that you've read about recently, they 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 become they've divorced. So you know, you could say that's. You know, maybe because they work so hard. Who knows? Um, I'm divorced because maybe I work so hard. But Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, uh, a lot of uh, 
entrepreneurs, uh, maybe they put too much time into their business. So uh, a healthy uh, life work balance is not is easy to talk about. It's hard to do. Yeah, it's very hard to do because you're driven. If you're a driven person, you want to make your company work so well, and you measure your company's and success every day by various met- metrics. You don't measure how good you're doing at your job as a husband or as a uh, wife or as a, a, a parent every day. So you can you can slough off that because you don't have a metric every day. But I I think it's it's not as easy to do as as talk about for sure. It- if you can do it again, would you do anything differently? If I had to do anything differently, what I would do is I wouldn't have gone to law school. Probably I would have gone to business school. <laughs> that would have been good. Uh, secondly, I wouldn't have spent four years in the Carter White House because I, you know, maybe I would have been better for the country if I didn't do that. And I came out and practiced law for five years after I left the White House. That was a waste of my time. Um, but in the end, I probably would have given away more money uh, by uh, earlier. I've given away, you know, well over a billion dollars in cash. Um, to lots of things around the country. And I probably wish I had worked harder, made more money and given away more and started earlier. But on the whole, um, you know, I'm 73. When you're 73, you read the obituary pages every day to see who your age is dead. And uh, you guys are too young. You don't read the obituaries, I'm sure. But no doubt you must have known somebody in your life who died when you thought it was earlier than they should have died. So I'm always, you know, thankful I'm still alive and trying to do things that Make sure I don't, you know, die prematurely. Well, you, you talked about the things that you're looking for when you're uh, analyzing the company. I wonder from on a daily basis, the deal flow, how often are you involved or is it a, a process before it even gets to you? Okay. Carlisle um, is probably investing $10 billion to $12 billion of equity every year. Mm. And we're probably doing around the world, I don't know, 50, 70 deals a year. I, I sit on the investment committees of many of these things, but I am not doing the deals. So I read the investment committee memos. I give them my thoughts. They generally ignore them, but I give them my thoughts. <laughs> they confirm or not. Um, I have a family office, and they do. Uh, my family office does a lot of investments that are smaller than Carlisle's, and uh, you know I look at what they're doing. But I, I generally, I, I don't really have the time to dig into any one deal that much. So I, I just hire good people and hope that they'll come up with good recommendations. You know, if you keep turning down the recommendations of the people you hired, they're going to quit. So you yeah. have to trust them a bit. So I generally trust people and generally don't turn down the recommendations. Though I've made mistakes. I turned down Facebook personally. And when Mark was in college, I turned down, uh, in effect, um, Amazon when, when Jeff was just starting the company. So I make a lot of mistakes. Well, Mr. Rubenstein, it's been a pleasure. Before we leave, anything that you would like to okay. say? Book, well, anything? Thank you. Uh, thank you all for inviting me. And uh, you know, I appreciate it. Good day. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much. Have a good Thanks one. Thanks a lot. Bye. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs> a mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.